prepare your ears, humans. Happy, sad, confused begins now. Today on Happy, Sad, Confused, Mads Mikkelsen mixing up Hollywood blockbusters and acclaimed Danish cinema like his latest performance in Another Round. Hey guys, I'm Josh Horowitz. Welcome to another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. I've been wanting to have Mr. Mads Mikkelsen on for some time, and finally, we've made it happen. You know him, of course, from stellar work like Hannibal, cutting-edge network television like hasn't been done in many years, if at all, and big, big movies like Doctor Strange and Rogue One. He's starring in the new Fantastic Beasts movie. But really, if you know Mads Mikkelsen's work, you know him probably first from his Danish work. He has a close collaboration over the years with filmmakers like Suzanne Beer and um, Nicholas Winding Refn, and uh, he's really been able to kind of mix it all up in a fascinating career, and, and fascinating is the word for Mads Mikkelsen. I feel like his face, his voice, his very persona, um, he's just an arresting kind of magnetic presence. And I think that's why people are so attracted to him and why people are, are borderline obsessed with him, including myself. So I'm thrilled that this finally happened. I got a chance to meet Mads over Zoom and have a, a long, in-depth conversation about his life and career. He is currently starring in uh, a really, really great film and an amazing performance. Uh, it's a collaboration with another director he's, he's worked with a couple times now, Thomas Vinterberg. Uh, the new film is Another Round. It's out, available on VOD, various places, you know, iTunes, Amazon, etc., wherever you get your movies on demand. And I, I heartily recommend this one. It is one of the best performances of the year. He's getting lots of awards attention. He's already won a bunch of stuff in Europe and very, very potentially could be in the mix uh, for stuff like the Golden Globes and Oscars and stuff. And, and I would be happy to see him in that mix because um, he's fantastic in this film, which is... You know, to, to give you a little bit of a tease, it's a fascinating kind of premise. It's based on on the theory by by some, put forward by some, that we are born with uh, a lack of alcohol uh, content in our blood. That we that we actually require a little bit more to be at our heightened most uh, alive. And we, you know, we all know this that that have had uh, partaken in drink over the years. That alcohol does make us feel a little bit happier and smarter and sexier and whatever and and this film kind of explores that the character he plays martin is kind of at a midlife crisis at a crossroads and decides to kind of test this theory along with a bunch of friends and start to drink and start to drink constantly like throughout their lives and their teachers so it's 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 an interesting uh kind of moral social dilemma um and it flies in the face of a lot of the kind of like depictions of alcohol we've seen it in film and look it's it's an honest portrayal we know that the, the the downfall that alcohol can lead to but we also know how alcohol can make many of us feel so um a very interesting different take on a subject that i think mo- m- many of us feel like we're the experts on so um again i heartily recommend another round check it out uh mads uh, as i said has really mixed it up in recent years i had to talk to him about star wars rogue one one of my favorite Star Wars films, period, his performance in Doctor Strange, Casino Royale, which was really the the big Hollywood blockbuster that brought him to the fore. He is currently, as I alluded to earlier, filming the third Fantastic Beasts film. And for some context there, if you don't know it, he replaced Johnny Depp. He's playing Grindelwald. Johnny obviously has come under a lot of fire for allegations over the last few years. Um, so Warner Brothers decided to pull the plug and remove Johnny from the production. They were already filming, so Mads is currently in London filming that, and he was kind enough to take time out from a busy schedule to uh, to talk about his life and work. So that's what's up on the podcast today. Other things to mention in the Josh Horowitz world, well, for, first and foremost on my mind, if you follow me on social media, I've got a crazy dog in the other room, guys. I am now a, a proud dog owner. Um, we have adopted Lucy, who is an adorable pit mix rescue um, from Lucky Dog Refuge in Connecticut. Um, she is acclimating well to city life for the most part. She's not a puppy. She's two years old. Um, but she's got a lot of energy, guys. It's changed my life, mostly in good ways. She's adorable and so sweet. And um, But, you know, we had, we had some, some potty training issues the first few days. That actually went away relatively quickly. But now we're just dealing with, like... You know, she's got a lot of energy. She's a pit. She's a pit mix. So, like, 
sometimes it gets gets a little a little much to handle, guys. So I'm I'm you know send me your advice <laughs> on Twitter on Instagram if you have any advice. We're uh, we're seeking it. I literally like moments before recording this intro was trying to teach her you know to go down to to sit to go down and uh, suffered a little little bit of a nick. I'm okay. I'm gonna survive, but uh, it's uh, it's a hazardous life being a dog owner. Even even with sweet sweet Lucy, <laughs> so um, but yes, for the most part, she's fantastic, and we're very happy to have her here in the uh, palatial Horowitz estate. It's not palatial, it's but it's it's big enough for her. Um, anyway, other things I want to mention. Oh yeah, I want to mention Stir Crazy is back with a new episode this week. Uh, my crazy show for Comedy Central. We have Madeleine Petch. If you know Riverdale, you know Madeline. She is uh, a delight on that show and a delightful personality. And um, she killed it in this episode of Stir Crazy. She came ready for fun and delivered in spades. Um, I always say, this is this is one of my favorites. This is one of my favorites. Um, and she was kind of surprising in some ways. Like, I mean, I expected and hoped she would be good, but she exceeded my expectations. So check out that episode. Um, on Comedy Central's YouTube and Facebook pages, on my social media uh, pages, Joshua Horowitz, and I hope you guys enjoy that one. Uh, if you haven't checked out my interview with Elizabeth Olsen on WandaVision for MTV, check that out. That's on MTV News's YouTube page. No spoilers in it, but it was great to reminisce uh, about some of our shared experiences over the years, including... Some of you guys have sent me this meme over the years. I did a sketch, an after-hour sketch with Lizzie Olsen a few years back. This was before Infinity War came out, and part of the bit of the sketch is she supposedly ruins the end of Infinity War by saying everybody dies. I had no idea what the end of Infinity War was going to be. I didn't realize that half of everybody was going to die. So people have since then said, oh my god, Elizabeth Olsen ruined Infinity War (laughs) in retrospect. So we had a laugh about that and reminisced about her taping that and whether that even occurred to her as she was reading my, my silly, silly script. So... Um, check that out, as I said, on MTV News's YouTube and Facebook pages. Um, anyway, that's that's enough uh, other stuff for now. Let's get to the main event. Again, Mads Mikkelsen, check him out in another round on VOD. Uh, it's, uh, it's a stellar performance, and no surprise, from one of the most interesting, unique performers out there. Uh, here's my chat with the one and only Mads Mikkelsen. Thank you for taking the time. I know you you're in the middle of a of a ginormous movie there. Hopefully they're giving you a little a little time off. I have a day off and uh, the everything is shut down, so I enjoy doing this instead. Good stuff. Does it feel like you're kind of living like a double life right now? Like you're making a movie, which is obviously gonna occupy a lot of your brain, and you're also, you know, pushing this this passion project of yours. Does it feel like a little bit of a two nope. different lives? It's been like that ever since I started. It's, that's the nature of what we're doing. Yeah. The things we're shooting now will come out in um, a year, and then maybe if, with any luck, if it has a longer life where it travels throughout the countries, it will go on for a couple of years. Sure. So it's it's nature. We've we've been doing this ever since I, I started back in the in the previous millennium. <laughs> back in the dark ages for all yeah. of us. Um, I've always been a fan of your work, sir, and I and I and I love your collaborations with with you've collaborated on a number of times with some some of my favorite filmmakers and and kind of an interesting bunch of filmmakers whether it's Vinterberg on this Suzanne yeah. Beer the mad genius that is Nick Reffin um is there a commonality in the folks that you have established these kind of ongoing relationships with no they are all very different and the ones you mentioned there uh, Suzanne and Nicholas Thomas and we have to mention Anas Thomas Jensen who I've done dark comedies with uh, five now. Uh, do they have something in common? Yes, they do have something in common. They, they are, they are filmmakers uh, on, on their own mercy in the sense that they are complete in charge. They, they have an idea of what they want to do, and and that is that is their new baby, and we all we all trying to bring that <laughs> to life. Uh, and they're very different in, in the styles and, and what they want to tell. But they have that in common that they also have some strong personalities and they insist on, on this being their film, uh, which I really, really love in a director. So how much collaboration do you need, require once you're on set? Like once you're on set, is that still a place for collaboration or do you like 
do you know what you're going to do on day one? And do you want the director to know exactly what they're doing every day? Yeah. It's both. Uh, I take pride in, in spending quite a lot of time before we, we go on set. I don't like to have the big discussions on set. It's, it's expensive, exactly. it wastes time, yeah. and it can also bring a lot of frustration uh, to the set and to the other people watching it. Uh, I do like to be on the same page before we, we go on set. That doesn't mean that we're always completely agreeing, but at least that we have addressed it. We've looked at it, we've discussed it, and we know where each other stand. And we agreed that the, we're going down this path, and we might make a couple of, couple of takes that's going slightly different. Um, and and that's, that's the way I like to work. Having said that, once we are on set, things will um, happen and, and opportunities will, will, uh, will rise and, and we will have to, to capture that as well and come up with a, like impulsive ideas, uh, both directors, fellow actors, or, or me for that matter. So for me, it's a mix, but I do like to, to, to call each other in the middle of the night uh, a few weeks before uh, because you come up with something you find brilliant. <laughs> you need a director that'll abide by your insane last minute ideas and vice versa. Yeah, I mean, some like it more than others. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, no, I think that uh, at least the ones that call me again seem to uh, <laughs> live with it. <laughs> yeah, I got to think Refin likes a late night phone call, likes a, yeah. uh, a, a flight of fancy. Yes. Uh, <laughs> But, but, but Raven also, at least when he works back home, I, I don't know if it's changed that much. It, it, I mean, his films have changed uh, throughout his career. Sure. Um, in style. And, and um, so at least for him, he was very, if not dependent on, he was at least expecting the actors to, to bring something that wasn't in the story. That, that, that was a very big part of his work, that he would cast the right people that he he had a strong idea that they know about this world better than I do. Right. And, and I will be the grandmaster and will look at them or ask them to do certain things and they will, they will uh, add to that. Uh, so that's at least been his approach when I've worked with him. You, you guys essentially started your film careers together. Um, yeah. Pusher was your first film, I believe. I believe his first as well, right? Yeah. Um, did you know he had the goods right from the start or were no. you, con no? <laughs> I was, no, I've, uh, I've addressed that meeting a few times. Uh, I was in drama school. He was looking to raise money and find access for his film called Pusher, which was about the, the drug environment of Copenhagen, beyond the belly, yada, 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 where I grew up. He did not grow up there at all. So I meet a kid with thick glasses and short pants. <laughs> um, high-pitched voice, you know, talking about what he wants to do. And I'm like, what is going on? Uh, but then the more I listened to him, the more I could tell that he had a visual and an emotional ambition about this project. Uh, and uh, he didn't understand a word of what I was saying because the only reason I got casted for that was that he didn't want actors. He just didn't, he loathed actors. He wanted real people. And, and somebody told him, like, you can't have real people for all the parts. They're too big. You've got to have somebody who also can go in and out with the characters. Right? And finally, he agreed on watching me because the only reason he wanted to watch me was that somebody said, he's quite interesting, but he's a hard time understanding what he's saying because I had real fast, sweet language. And he didn't understand much of it, but he, he loved what I did. So, <laughs> so <laughs> well, you did hit upon something though that that you know we're talking about filmmakers. You respond to most actors respond to it's it's passion at the end of the day. It's 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 someone. You, the last thing you want is someone that's um, showing up just as a job. And whether their passion is maybe misguided or not, you can work with that. You can't work with somebody that doesn't have, um, you know, this is this is these are the kind of jobs that require all in. It's, yeah, it, it has to feel as if this is the film. That's the film. That's the only shot they get. And this is their dream. Yeah. Doesn't matter if the first film or it's, the, it's their uh, 100th film. It has to be their baby. And they have to, you know, to be, you know, there has to be a lot of fire inside of them to, to, to bring this project to life. That's definitely key for me. Uh, I mean, you can bump into where you think that's the case and, it, it's, and then it turns out that was not the case. Right. And, and then you have to bring a little more fire uh, on board, right? If, if the director is it, but 
but mostly I've been lucky and I've been um, smart enough to see that that was the one I wanted to work with. What are your feelings on, on day one of a, of a shoot like another round? You've worked with the filmmaker. You've talked yeah. about this, I know, on and off for seven plus years with him. Do you have butterflies? You've been doing this a while. You know yeah. what you're doing. But give me a sense of what's in your head, what's in your heart on day one of a film. Well, like you're looking forward. Uh, you're looking very much forward to get started. I was not part of it the first few days, which I, which I hate. I, I would love to start. I don't like that people's already been, you know. Yeah, what's happening? Wait, something's happening without me? Wait. Everybody has nicknames. And right. I'm, you know. Uh, so, but, uh, but I, I think I just, I snuck in and I was there for, the, for some of the first shots anyway, even though I wasn't in them. Yeah, it's, it's butterflies in the stomach. It's, uh, you wanna, this is the first scene, so you will have to find your character now. There's no room, I mean, it's not like theater, we can go back to it and change it, no, no. This is now. Uh, and we have a fairly good idea what the character is, but there's obviously a lot of questions up there. How exactly does he move? How exactly does he talk? How exactly, how, how, how tired of life is he? And, 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 and these are all things we have to nail the first day. Uh, even though it's, it, I think we started out with something quite not so dramatic, just you know, walking through a school and having a little chit chat with a, with a teacher. Uh, but that's enough to give away if you don't have the concept of what the character is. Um, so it's, it's a nervous day, but it's also a beautiful day because we get started. There's a, as you well know, as a fan of film, there's a long, rich tradition in movie making uh, about films that kind of talk about the destructive nature of alcohol. I mean, mm -hmm. many an award has been won hey. for, for those things, and rightfully so, from Days of Wine and Roses to Leaving Las Vegas. These are great films and great character and tons, studies. Tons of Danish as well. So it's, it's not a subject that has not been touched upon. So this flies in the face of that. I can't remember a film like this that has kind of really honestly and openly talked about what we all know, which is that alcohol, it frees us and makes mm. us feel uh, smarter and funnier <laughs> and the better version of ourselves, at least for a time. Yes. Um, did you have some wariness about going against the prevailing wisdom uh, of how alcohol mm. is depicted in film? No. No, none whatsoever. Uh, first of all, uh, the, the alcohol part of the film is the Kickstarter to, to tell the story about life right. uh, and embracing life, the life you're in the midst of, the life you don't seem to be able to, to embrace uh, because you're, you're, you're um, jealous on the future and you are not satisfied with your past, so you kind of forget your present, right? So that, that was, first of all, what the story was about. The alcohol was just a hat that is, you know, kickstarting the film, even though it's a big theme of the film. And that we're going against the, the classic narrative? No, that is, that's just fire on my, <laughs> on my, on my or gasoline on my fire, because I, I do love to go against narratives. I think we, we have to, I mean, a narrative can be truly true and honest, but it can also be one-eyed. Uh, the dangers of alcohol, we all know about it. It's not that it's been hidden from us. The dangers of smoking, we say. Dangers of shooting up, whatever. You can, you, you can keep going, right? But alcohol has been here for six, 7,000 years. And it's, it's, it's like no shit show when I heard this theory. It's like <laughs> low-hanging fruit. We know how great it is with two glasses of wine. That's why we do it. It's a social lubricant. We get the balls to pick up that phone and make that phone call we never dared to do. We, um, we forget our sorrows for a minute. We become maybe more creative. Some people get closer to their spirits um, and people meet. A lot of, um, very few people have met their spouses if there wasn't alcohol involved. Uh, and then we can say, that is sad. Yeah, maybe it is, but, but it's a fact. Uh, so, but we also, I think we touch upon the darker side. We, we do say there is a big difference between two glasses of wine and two bottles. There is a big difference. Yeah. Uh, and I think that we do touch upon it. But our goal was not to be moral about the film either way around. We, we wanted to be a tribute to alcohol, what it can do, a positive thing. 
and then we want to touch upon what it can also do when you pass that limit. Um, but predominantly, it was a film about life. What was your relationship growing up with alcohol? Were you? I was a late bloomer. I, did, I didn't drink till I was like out of college. I don't know what was wrong with me. Yeah, cool. yeah. but that, that is, that for most Danish people a no-go. You will definitely have people waiting that long. But it's, it's such a big part of high school. Yeah. Uh, it's also part of what, if you're a working class kid, that like I was back in the 70s, it's also part of pre-high school. Uh, you could go to into an apartment play, play billiard when you were 13. And you could drink a beer as long as your older brother was with you and he he had promised to, to drag you home it was fine you know uh, those those days have changed and that's a good thing so you can't do that anymore you have to be 18 if you go in somewhere but so, so, so yes it's 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 part of the danish culture and, and but then again it's also part of american cultures depending on where you come from and, and right. italian and irish and you can go on and on uh maybe not like one-to-one -one with the kids graduating and getting their hats and, and, and doing the craziest things you see in our film. But then they have something um, equivalent to that, which is slightly different. Yeah. But, but, the, but the idea about what happens after a glass of wine, where everything gets lifted a little, everybody can relate to that. It's interesting. I mean, I know from, from hearing your previous conversations, like you, you knew and your fellow actors knew it wasn't going to be a good idea to show up drunk to play drunk. That's, you need your wits about you to perform your craft. But at the same time, I'm fascinated about, you know, acting is all about kind of letting go of your inhibitions and not worried about feeling like a fool. So mm -hmm. I'm curious, just on a more broad, broader sense, what are your, what, how do you get to that place without alcohol to feel so free to do anything in a scene to accomplish your goals? I think that the fact that we know each other very well, uh, all four of us, including director slash writer, uh, gave us a sense of, um, uh, we felt safe enough to go out on a limb and, and make a fool out of ourselves. So, so the laughs you will uh, receive when you didn't nail it, uh, a recognizable laughs because that's like exactly, you know, we all know that was wrong, but it's so easy to make it wrong the way you just did it. So it was a, an embracing laugh and an embracing uh, group of people where you can, you can go on the limb together. And then there's something interesting happening. It's not only for us. It made an experiment with young kids who got served alcohol. One, one part of the group and the other part did not, and they, and they were not told which one. And they, and they partied and they went on. And the ones who did not get alcohol served were as intoxicated. They behaved exactly the same way. It is very intoxicating to run around other people who lets go, even though it's acting, all of a sudden it becomes uh, very freeing. Uh, we also had a boot camp where we tested out these specific things where we went for, you know, got the shots, we, we measured exactly 0 0.5, 0 0.8. We, we discovered some interesting things about when you think that uh, this is fine, I can't even feel it. And then you watch the tape the next day, it's like, it's not fine, my friend. Your hands this is valuable information. Now you know for the rest of your life, your limp, like what limits, at what points you can get to. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've all since, since the, the, everybody has a camera on their phone and we had a super cozy night. Uh, yeah, maybe I was a little loud at one point, but it wasn't too bad. And then you see the video the day after, Jesus, nobody's, nobody's listening to each other. Everybody's just... <laughs> Uh, Everyone's the most fascinating person in the room to themselves. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, that's happening on a very interesting level, where it's like 0.1 actually. But 0.05 and 0 0.8, it's a little variation. You can misjudge that to be just a happy person today. It's just in good mood. Right. But then the little move starts giving you away. You simply don't, you're not really in control of your hands anymore. Or there's certain words that comes out a little different than normally, right? And that, that was a really good lesson for all of us that we could use specifically for the teaching scenes where we, if we wanted to dial up and down on the volume of that, we, we right. could go back and forth with those things. This sounds like such a, you know, usually I'm ta uh, talking to actors about boot camp. We're talking about movies like Saving Private Ryan and like spending two weeks learning how to be soldiers. This is a much better version, Mads. You figured it out. Congratulations. Because, yeah. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, we were not curious about how, how is it to be drunk because obviously we have enough experience of that. Right. But we wanted to, to just really systematically, scientifically test out those specific levels. Right. Uh, and it was just very interesting. And it was, 
very, very precise when there was no communication anymore. When, I mean, and if that had been the case for every single day that we had been in that zone, we would have had a director that was trying to talk to four kids who were screaming, you know. Uh, right. And when, we, when you go from one level and have to go a little down because the director wants it to be a little less now, that's also a no-go if, you <laughs> if you're for real on that level. Sure. Right? Yeah. We're, we're talking about, you know, kind of like uh, inhibitions and letting go. Um, rightfully so, the ending sequence of this film has been talked about a lot. There probably hasn't been a conversation you've had about this film without talking about the dance sequence, so I apologize in advance. But it is... I did have some in the beginning uh, because it was such a secret when the film had sure. been released in Denmark. So all the, all the journalists wanted to talk about it, but they couldn't. Not... <laughs> it's like a Marvel movie. It's the same thing. We can't talk about the big reveals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but... Um, it is one of the, the great sequences I've seen in, in years in film. It truly is uh, um, just a release. Um, whether you've seen the movie or not, hopefully we're not ruining anything for you, but know that um, Mads really calls upon some long dormant dance skills uh, in it. And, I, and I, are there some lessons here? Because I know you've said that like you were very reluctant. You didn't want to like lose mm -hmm. the reality that you guys had established in this Yeah, movie. that was uh, what I was reluctant about. Not so much that I will, that I would dance. I mean, I, if there's a good reason, I'll, I'll dance. If there's a good reason, I'll get naked. But, but, it, but I was a little, you know, but sometimes there's not a good reason to get naked and you have a hunch. Uh, and I think it was a good reason for this dance, but, but I, just, I just felt that we could lift it into an imagination thing, a drunken man's fantasy. I was afraid we couldn't get away with it without coming across as very pretentious. Uh, that, was my, that was my thing. Uh, Thomas was also a little nervous about it, but not as much as me. And, and, and he just said, listen, it, it's gonna stand out even more in the film if we heighten this moment. Yeah. Uh, so we should go for it. And, uh, and uh, so we did, and he was absolutely right. Uh, and, and luckily so. We've been talking a lot about, as you say, kind of like the, the accoutrements of this is the alcohol, but it's underlying the story is a man who at the start is at a low point. He's, 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 um, doesn't see a future or is at, at you know, the cliched midlife crisis. That's not a cliche because we all, I feel like, go through it at some yeah. point. But even, even worse than that, he, he, sees, he sees his past every day. Every day he goes to work, he sees the immortals, the young faces. Right. That, he's reminded of life, the potential. And, constantly. Yeah. And he's being reminded that, hey, what did you do with your life? You know, what, is, is this what you wanted? Uh, so that's the reason why Thomas placed us in a school and not in a factory. He wanted us to be reminded every day if we're dealing with a so-called midlife crisis, it would be interesting that you, you're being faced with it every day. Uh, at the point when we meet him, he hasn't put his finger on it. He, he's, he's not addressed it. It's just... Uh, you know, it's just comfortable number. Train has left the station, but it's only dawning on him the night in the early stage of the film where, where they have a dinner party, a celebration, a birthday party. Where he's had a conversation with the headmaster. Things are not going his way. And that night it dawns on him that I just, I'm a failure. Everything is failed, you know. And, and then Thomas makes this very bold move of having a character that has a, a smaller breakdown very early in the film which is something you would always place in the end of a film. Uh, and, and very bold of him to say, you know what? Instead of the audience knowing the characters and then accepting this scene, I want the audience to get to know the characters through the scene. Right. Uh, which is uh, bold and ramble. You know, talking about crises, midlife crises, you know, I, I, I know you only from talking to you the last 20 minutes and from watching a lot of your work, but it seems like, you have gone the other direction. You, uh, in your 50s, have, ex have experienced the best portion of your career, arguably. Um, yep. You have different kinds of opportunities, whether it's character roles, leading men opportunities. Um, you know, I've talked to so many actors and like it's impossible to make plans to plan for the future, but you must be thrilled with how this has played out. Has this exceeded where you thought you would be at this point in your life, in terms of the career at least? If you ask me when I was a young dancer, yes. If you ask me when I was in drama school, yes. If you ask me the first 10 years of my Danish acting career, yes. Everything has been different than I thought. But then again, my life has been different than I thought from the very start. I never, I never dreamed of being a dancer. And I, I mean, never watched the dance. 
never been to the theater. So nothing has turned out the way I planned, but that's also partly thanks to that I've not planned anything. <laughs> I didn't have any plans. Uh, I had dreams and fantasies like everybody else. I was watching films and I wanted to be that guy up there, not the actor. I wanted to be Bruce Lee. I wanted to be the guy. I didn't, I didn't imagine being an actor. I just wanted to be him. Well, he was uh, the I coolest wanted... man on the planet. I mean, why, who doesn't uh, want to be Bruce Kelly. Lee? <laughs> or whoever I was watching. Um, so, but never ever thought that that would be a career. So, so yes, of course, this is surprising me. And one can argue, yes, it looks like a lot of things are happening in my 50s, but there was also a lot of things happening in my 40s and sure. in my 30s, different things. Um, unlike Martin, uh, the character I play, I am a curious person. I do, do find it interesting that the sun is rising. And I do find it interesting. Right now I'm looking out of this window here and there's a building down there I've watched a few times and I'm just curious, what is it? And I know I'm going to go for a walk and have a look. And, and Martin wouldn't bother, <laughs> you know. Uh, so there's a big difference between me and him, luckily. I, I'm curious, you know, you refer to, yes, like, you know, I consider myself a student of film, yet, frankly, I haven't seen a lot of your earlier work, the early Danish work. I've seen the Nicholas Reffin films and some other things. Mm -hmm. But, you know, prior to when you kind of made this transition, I think King Arthur was the first, quote unquote, Hollywood film you did, right? Um, you were very successful back home. You, you had done a hugely successful TV show. So again, kind of like talking to you back then, um, would you have been fine with never, quote unquote, breaking into the Hollywood market and, and being a Danish actor in your homeland? Back then? Back then. Yeah. 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 I, I didn't see up the Hollywood market. It, 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 it called me. Uh, there was somebody who heard of someone and they were getting actors from different parts of the world to do this King Arthur film. Uh, and all of a sudden, I ended up there for an audition and, and I got it. And I have no idea why I got it because I was supposed to sit on a horse and say a fairly quirky, cheesy monologue. And I don't think I pulled it off that, in, that well <laughs> because I was no horse. <laughs> and I didn't have any idea what this monologue was about. Um, but then I, I remember I did go down to, to Andrew Foucault, to, and I, I, I got, went down on, you know, he was sitting on, on the floor, and I went down to him and I said, listen, I, I don't understand this and this, but I have an idea, well, I would do this and this. <laughs> and I, I had a few proposals, and I don't think they were used to that, you know, because that's just the Danish approach. So he made a couple of takes more, and then he found that very interesting, that there was a guy who had an idea or something. <laughs> uh, this guy can help had, me, yeah. Yeah. And probably like my face, he's seen a few films with me before. So, so that was it. Uh, so yeah, I know. I, I, I was very, very pleased to be part, part of what happened in Denmark. At that point, Denmark was you know, being placed on the, map, on the map through a variety of reasons, through the dogma thingy. Nicholas was doing this thing as well. Others were doing horror films. Something was happening in Danish movies like, like never before, and I was part of that. Yeah. So, so I, I was just so pleased and happy at that point. And then this came along and then it just became a big, bigger playing field, which I was um, just very happy about as well. I, I mean, you're recognizable now around the world, but I, I always find it funny. Like, for instance, I went to I, I went on vacation to Stockholm a few years ago and, and it was like out of my dreams in the airport. Stellan Skarsgård was like just plastered on all the walls. It was like he was <laughs> greeting me to the country. <laughs> I would imagine that's somewhat similar for you. As much as you have fame around the world and in the U.S., back home, are you basically Tom Cruise? If I walked around with you, are you? <laughs> I'll tell you what, you can get a similar experience going to Copenhagen. Yeah. I am, I am blasted there, but not because in Denmark, we, Denmark, in Sweden, they have a tendency to, you know, they're very proud of their people, did sports, Bjorn Borg, Stellan right. uh, Max von Sydow, very proud of them. And so they use that as a magnet come to our country, the country of these people, right? Uh, I don't think we would pull that off in Denmark. We have a different approach to that. But I am hanging there. And that's because I've done a Cosgrove commercial. So that will greet you. Okay. <laughs> so there's one one for me and Stone. 
Fair enough. Um, so I think worldwide audiences probably first noticed you for good for in Casino Royale um, with a, a memorable performance as Lashif uh, opposite Daniel Craig, Daniel Craig's first Bond. Um, you were not a Bond fan, as I understand it. Uh, I was not a drug Bond fan. I just hadn't watched any of the films. So, but I lied, obviously. I, loved, I lied at the meeting and at the audition. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I had to ask some of my friends, what character is that? Who's in, you know, I, I, was not, I was not ready for a 10-question quiz. I was not. <laughs> Who had more fun in the torture scene, you or Daniel? Or was okay. nobody having fun? Uh, de- definitely me. Uh, <laughs> it was... It was, a, it was a great scene, and we were looking so much forward to it because it was like, it was a scene scene, you know, like a scene from, another, it could be any film. It, it was something that, Bond, it was a little brave of Bond to go down that path, right? So we were looking forward, and, 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 and so was uh, Martin Campbell, and uh, we had so many ideas, me and, uh, and Daniel, and we were sitting at a table with Martin, and we pitched our ideas, and at one point, Martin said, guys, guys, come back. It's a Bond film. Let's 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 talk again. You know, so we went into our our previous world of independence. Oh, I want to see you. I want to see you and, and Daniel's version now. <laughs> but, uh, but anyways, uh, but it, it turned out great. And but it was a very rough day for him. Obviously, the amount of sincere, genuine, desperate, painful screams he had to over and over again. That's hard work. You know. Yeah. And, uh, the body and doesn't I, know the difference between acting and, and not acting sometimes, that right? That point, you lose your voice eventually. And I, and I, yes, my character was frustrated that I couldn't get to him, uh, but, but I was not going through the same level of pain. Keep in mind that I only had one eye and I did miss my target once in a while. <laughs> so some of those screams are quite genuine. Is Daniel still talking to you or are things okay <laughs> now? I'm sure if he meets me, yeah. <laughs> Are you treated uh, especially well at casinos or especially not well at casinos? If they recognize me, everybody wants to steal my money. Of course, <laughs> that's a great story. And I keep reminding them I, I'm, not, uh, I'm not a shark. I'm just, just me playing poker. I do love playing poker. I don't go to casinos that often, but I do love poker. I've always done. Yeah. Um, I, uh, like many, count myself a big fan of what you and Brian did on Hannibal. Um, I mean, it's it's looking back now. I, I it's a miracle that a network put that show on to me. <laughs> yeah. Um, did you... I didn't know at the time? I didn't know the difference between a network and, and a cable. Uh, right. But once I realized now that it was just like it was not even it was not even close to the, the second most brutal, or visual, or gruesome oh. thing was not even close. Second, I mean, it's just insane what we got away with. How did Brian Fuller, the creator, sell you on on that character, which had been arguably, you know, etched in stone by one of the great actors of all time? That must that that must have been foremost on your mind. Like, what what more is there for me to mine in this character? Yeah, well, the only way to to, to sell it was that we're not doing that. We're doing something else. That was the only way. And then, obviously, when I, my ears were open, I was ready. That's something else couldn't just be completely different either. It couldn't just be something completely, completely different. And so there had to be a bridge between what the stories are, what the character is, but also make it our own. And, and, and one of the reasons why it obviously became our own was that it's a TV show. Bear in mind that Anthony Hopkins in Silence of the Lamp, he has 14 minutes of screen time. That's pretty much what I have in every single episode. That was, uh, and yeah. it has insane impact on us, right? Meaning that, that it was so masterful and we're not going to go down that path, but we have a chance to do something completely different, which is for two seasons, watch a man who is um, part of the FBI. He's, he's becoming friends with people. Uh, hopefully we, we got him as fairly charming sometimes. And then once in a while, we see the other side. Right. Uh, and whereas if you're in jail, as, as Anthony Hopkins was in, in Sounds of the lamb all those cars are gone that's why you can get away with doing the your little thing with your tongue and, and things like that we couldn't do that at least not for the first two seasons right. because people would will give them away so that's what sold me and then obviously brian's approach to the insanity of his stories and his insane friendships he had crisscross 
not only between Will and Hannibal, but also between Jack Crawford and, and Abigail. It was, he has an insane approach to things, Brian, and it's absolutely surprising every time he comes with a new script. It's just like, what? Well, and it's always brilliant. And not to mention ex exquisite filmmaking on a TV scale. You're not used to seeing yeah. that kind of artistry on that scale. Yeah. I agree. Uh, but uh, I had nothing to compare with at that point. I, I, I just loved what you talked about. And then when, yeah. I saw, when I saw it and I saw other shows that might be dealing with the same thing, I was just like, this is really, really different uh, and um, in a good way. So I, yeah, that, I was very proud, proud to be part of that for three seasons. It was, um, it was tough. It was a hard job for all yeah. of us. Maybe especially for me because it's not my it's not my native tongue, uh, and I am constantly talking about you know Hungarian dishes or Japanese music. Uh, so there was constantly words that nobody has heard about, and I had to learn them like that because they, everything came in so late, right? Yeah. So it was brutal hard work, but I did enjoy it tremendously. Does it feel like unfinished business at this point? I know that you guys didn't know the cancellation was coming. Does it feel like, and what's your level of optimism? I mean, how often do you talk to Brian about continuing this? I mean, given that it's found a new home at Netflix, the talks have been revitalized, right? So, uh, so, so there is that. And, uh, and I always keep the same answer. I think that I don't think you find anyone who was part of the, 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 the cast that is still alive <laughs> uh, that would say no thanks. I think we all enjoyed it tremendously, so we can yeah. all go back and visit it again. Uh, unfinished, no. I mean, the creative uh, showrunners always have a way to end the season because they never know if they're going to get the next one. So, so there's always this feel of like, that was it. Having said that, the third season after that, we were pretty sure we would get the fourth. That was not the feeling we had after the first or the second, but uh, the third one, we were pretty sure. And then the opposite <laughs> and of course, happened. Yeah. Um, was Rihanna a big Valhalla Rising fan or was she a big The Hunt fan? How did you end up in <laughs> Rihanna's video? <laughs> I never got a chance to ask what specifically it was. When I heard that she wanted me to be part of it, I actually thought that, oh, am I gonna dance? Is that because she knows I was a dancer? What, right. What's the idea? Um, Maybe it was Bond. Maybe it was Hannibal. Could have been Hannibal. I right. don't know. Don't question it. Once you're there, just accept I it. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I just know that it's for great Rihanna fans. So that was a really welcoming job in, in my little home. Well, I mean, I looked it up on YouTube. That has 155 million views. I mean, if you weren't in Star Wars and Marvel, I'd say this is your most watched thing ever. But I mean, it's, it stands toe to toe. Yeah, that's insane. But she is, um, yeah, it's interesting because I'm not... I'm not on social media in that sense. Uh, so, but I hear some insane numbers sometimes. Oh yeah. And we, do, we don't know how popular some of these people are. And she's up, up there with the, with the most popular people. And then she is, she's incredible talented. I, I really enjoyed working. It was only two days, so it was very chaotic, but I mean, so sweet and extremely talented. So that's a, that's a good little, in the notebook, yeah. Totally. Uh, talking about uh, notches in the book, you had an amazing one-two punch uh, in quick succession around 2016. You know, I, I as any self-respecting nerd, can't uh, not hit Doctor Strange and Rogue One. I grew up obsessed with Star Wars and obsessed with comic books. Let's talk Doctor Strange first. Um, was it always that character? Because I'd read that you were also discussed for Baron Mordo, or was did Scott have you in mind as as the villain only? I, I don't. I have, that's the first time I hear that. Mm -hmm. uh, always Cassilius is, since I was approached, he might have talked about it to other people, uh, but uh, nope, it was always Cassilius. Uh, yeah. And that was fun. I got to do a lot of flying kung fu. Uh, Did you grow up with comics? Were you a comic book guy? I am the comic book guy. Really? How did we a, get to 36 minutes into this conversation and not I, realize that? I've been a comic book collector since I can remember. And then later on in life, when I knew what that was, I, I'd make sure that I got everything in first editions and originals. <laughs> but I was not, I mean, I read Marvel. I loved Marvel. I loved all these things. And I had a thing called Kung Fu Magazine as well, uh, with Shang-Chi and Iron Fist. But my collecting thing was with albums, graphic novels. Yeah. Never, the, uh, never the, uh, the Marvel ones. I started, but it was just never ending. 
So I, I, I swapped into graphic novels, and that's, that's where my heart went later. Well, you'll, you'll probably show me up here, but I'm curious. Give me, give me top three, top five graphic novels, trade paperbacks, whatever they, you were into. They, they are, um, they're, they're very predominantly very uh, European. Uh, so, so, so this is very difficult not to get around the, the Tintin, or what they call Tank Tank, sure. uh, which is like the father of a lot of things. I was also a very big spirit fan, Will Eisner. Oh, sure. Good to get my hands on his stuff as well. Uh, and then there's, there's a lot of guys, there's Bilal and Tadi, they are French and they're German people. They, but you will recognize some of them when you see them. Hugo Pratt, and you might know Hugo Pratt, uh, who's done Corto Maltese. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Blueberry was a big thing. Uh, this guy, do you know Blueberry? The, I don't actually. It's a, it's a French guy called Moth, uh, Mephius. Uh, Mobius, uh, and, and it's just so, it's like you want to make a film right away. The coolest cowboy in the world, yeah. You must be bonding with, uh, with Dan Fogler over there. I know he was on, on Hannibal, but... We made, a, we made a podcast together. He, he had a, a Comic-Con podcast, and we did an hour. Oh, cool. Where we threw quite a few comic books, yes. And I didn't know. I didn't know that he was a comic book creator oh. himself. Yeah. I didn't know. He gave me some for Christmas and it, and it blew my mind that we both grew up with that. And, and he actually made it. The rest of us were just dreaming about it. <laughs> um, being a part of Star Wars, being a part of Rogue One. Rogue One to me is like a miracle of a Star Wars movie. I don't know how uh, they pulled it off. Especially, look, I don't know what was true, what wasn't true. Like reshoots, all that kind of stuff. But whoever made it in the end, you guys got there. Because it's an amazing piece of work. Um, yeah. Did it feel chaotic at the time or did it feel like any other big hollywood movie you'd done that had kind of the requisite reshoots etc some of it was just uh, uh straightforward working and then there was some of it that was a little chaotic it was, there was no secret that the, <clears throat> there was some rewriting in the script while we were doing it right and, and when you do that while you're doing it it is obviously very tricky for the actors to know what am i carrying into this room now you know, I yes. opened the door. I'm not sure exactly what happened before. Uh, so there was some of that. Having said that, we all, it always felt like a solid story. Uh, a, you know, a young girl lost, doesn't know where she belongs in the world. Uh, then an Oppenheimer story unfolds. She's always heard that he was this. And then she realizes he was that, you know. Uh, and, 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 and it was quite beautiful written. So, so at the end of the day, the changes that was in the film was not as dramatic as, as, uh, as people talk about. It was tweets and, and uh, but obviously when you do it while we're working, it's always a little confusing. Is there any talk, any rumblings of, you know, with all these prequel, et cetera, things, uh, Cassian Andor show of seeing Galen or so again? Well, that's a tricky thing with the prequels, right? If you, if you tend to wait long enough, and then next, you go back and visit the character, then you have to look not only younger than the previous film, but much younger than you are today. <laughs> so, good luck with that. A lot of hair dyeing going on there. Hey, you've seen what they can do on Fantastic Beasts. Anything is possible. Uh, um, you are You are in the midst of that right now. Um, I'm a big fan of, of your castmates there. I've done a lot with all of those guys. They're all impeccably um, fun Please, and smart folks. You, you, you obviously jumped into this one in an unusual circumstance. Johnny left, et cetera. I won't rehash all of that. But from your perspective, I assume you didn't have much time to prep. <laughs> you had to just sort of decide, has that been a disadvantage? Has that been to your advantage? What would have been the struggle of sort of jumping into a, a, a pivotal role like Grindelwald with not much time to think about it? Yeah, it's not the normal process for me uh, or for anyone. Obviously, in a Danish film, as we talked about before, the, the whole idea of uh, talking for weeks and maybe months before we start shooting, coming up with ideas, calling each other in the middle of the night, would probably not be the way I would approach it in an American film anyways. Right. But I would definitely have meetings and talks and, and all those details are, are settled before, you know, in good time. And, and here it was like, okie dokie, I'm flying over, we'll take it from there. Uh, and then we had a Skype meeting and... We talked about the story, the character, and it seems as if everybody was agreeing very much how to approach it with the, with the change we were, we were dealing with now. Uh, and uh, so, yes, it was different, but it, it didn't feel rushed or anything once I was there. It felt, yeah, we've talked about it, but let's, let's start working, you know. Uh, yeah. 
but not the normal way. No. Um, but I would think that the, the benefits of working at David Yates is such a sweet man, knows what he's doing. And then working with folks like Jude and Eddie, um, have you gotten to kind of like get dig, dig into it enough? Have you gotten some kind of like juicy actor stuff yeah. with Jude and, yeah. and Eddie yet? Absolutely. Uh, and uh, from the get go, actually. Uh, and they, they were just, they're just wonderful people. They, they know the situation they're in, they know the situation I am in, uh, the film is in. Uh, so it's just like a, a very, it's a family that's always been, already been close knitted, but there was room for one more. I, that's the way you felt nice. uh, And so, um, so that, yeah, so that was just a very good experience. And, and, uh, and they are, they are, as you said, they're, but it goes for everyone there. It's the entire crew as well. They, yeah. They're very, 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 on a very difficult circumstances, not only this, but the COVID lockdowns and the, testing constantly this just feels like a, a, a really tight-knit community one film i wanted to mention that sadly i guess i don't know if we'll never see or, or it's just destined not to be and i don't know if this is a sore subject we were going to see you star in an alexander payne movie and i was so excited at that prospect and it it fell apart in such an unusual circumstance and i'm just curious yeah. it fell apart like a, a week before shooting is is there any hope for this film coming back around or, or what's the story two days before oh my god <laughs> Yeah, it was, uh, you know what, I've been trying to figure out exactly what happens, uh, what happens, and uh, I give, I, I'm given different answers. Um, so for now, I will stick to the, the official thing, there was something to do with the rights, and, and the way to approach it, because it's a real character, obviously, <laughs> and, uh, and there was some concerns from his side, and then they, uh, they met his concerns and said, well, okay, in that case, we, we're not going to go down that path. I, that's what uh, the story is, and then we say, okay. Fair enough. Well, I don't want to end on, on a, a downbeat note. Let's end on an upbeat note and say once again that another round is um, one of one of the great pieces of art I've seen in, in some time, and your performance is just a stellar piece of work. So no surprise, you always deliver, but this one really shows off your talents in the best possible way. Um, I hope you're enjoying this weird Zoom victory lap, <laughs> as it were. Really do enjoy it. I mean, it is obviously regrettable that we were invited to a lot of, of festivals and they're not happening. But we managed to, to get a few physical ones in uh, and, and that was just wonderful. But it would have been, it would have been fantastic to travel with this film as well. Absolutely. Uh, for a second, it's, it's a good second. Yeah, I'm seeing the accolades still pouring in, whether it's awards or people like Guillermo del Toro. I don't know if you saw that. He weighed in. That's, that's a good, good backer to have. Yes, it's fantastic. And I also got a note that which is like, who said to whom? Yes, it was, um, it was Martin Scorsese who had seen it and told uh, Julian, who did a uh, fantastic uh, film about the Trinity Skate. Oh, uh, Julian Schnabel, sure, yeah. Yeah, Schnabel. Uh, so he sent me a text that uh, he was recommended our film and he watched it and he loved it very much. And then it was like the recommendation was from Martin Scorsese. Wow. And obviously being uh, like, both of them, but but as a teenager or a young man, when I watched Taxi Driver, he's been like an untouchable hero for me always. So so, so that was just surreal that he's seen a film yeah. and nobody forced him to say, <laughs> watch it. Yeah. A Martin Scorsese knows who I am. B Martin Scorsese loves what I do. This is a good yeah. day. <laughs> um, Mads, it's been a pleasure to get to know you. Hopefully, after this madness is over, we'll meet in person. Uh, congratulations again and stay safe out there. You know, thanks a lot. And so ends another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. Remember to review, rate and subscribe to this show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm a big podcast person. I'm Daisy Ridley and I definitely wasn't pressured to do this by Josh. (laughs) 